Again, I just uh, thank you for being here this morning and knowing that there's many places, many choices that you could have made, but uh, we're certainly glad that you have chosen to spend this time together in God's house. As I come to these moments, as I've told you before, I'm not really very good at kind of staying with the theme of what's happening on a particular day. I just ask the Lord to give me the appropriate word and he makes it appropriate for the day. I'm going to ask you this morning to turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. It's going to take me just a minute to get there, but if you want to go ahead and turn in the scripture to Exodus 34, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. The background of this chapter is largely found in Moses' receiving this second table to the law. As you remember, the first ones were broken. He went back and God gave him another copy. So he is there to receive the second of these tables of stone, and he's there to tell the people and remind them of the promises, the covenant that God had established with his people through Abraham. And he's talking about that covenant relationship and what that means. I want to just take a brief detour this morning and talk about this covenant relationship that he established. I had taught this wrong for a long time, and until a few months actually ago, God gave me a new picture of what he was trying to tell us in this covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, God has made Abraham some extravagant promises. He promised him, he says, I'm going to make your children like the stars of the sky. I want to make your descendants like the sand on the shore. And through you, the entire world is going to be blessed. And we know what he was talking about. He knew that through Abraham, Jesus would come. Well, I want to tell you this morning... That at the end of that day, God gave instruction to Abraham to prepare a sacrifice. And this is basically what it looked like. He says, I want you to take the animals and I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to put one piece on one side and one on the other. And I want you to form this, actually this bloody alley of sacrifice. The plan being to, to secure that covenant so that God could fulfill the promises that he gave Abraham was for the two of them to walk through the sacrifice together. At the same time, God and Abraham would pass through the sacrifice and then back. But at the end of the day, God let Abraham go to sleep. And God passed through the sacrifices alone because God wanted to powerfully deliver us a message. He wanted to say, I want to be able to give you the promises. I want to remain faithful to you but I can't base it on your goodness. I can't base it on your ability to perform. I can't base it on your ability to keep this covenant. Because if he had based it on Abraham, none of the promises would have ever been fulfilled. So he knew that Abraham had to be taken out of the story. So Abraham goes to sleep and God passes through the sacrifice alone, announcing to Abraham and announcing to us, I will never bless you based on your performance. I will never bless you based on your goodness. I'm going to bless you based on mine. I'm going to make this story about my love for you, about my goodness for you, about my kindness for you. I'm not going to base it on your ability to keep it. And this is where I have made this mistake because I thought for a long time that God was saying, I'm going to fulfill this covenant no matter whether you do or not. But God's message was larger than that because on this covenant document, 
where there was a sign down there that says, this is where is God I'm going to sign. And there's this blank for Abraham. And God not only signed his side, he also put his signature on Abraham's side. He said, I'm not only going to bless you no matter what you do, Abraham, I'm going to perform everything for you that I'm asking you to do. I'm not only going to do my part, I'm going to do your part. Why do you think God gave us the Holy Spirit? So that He in us could do the part that He knew we could not do. He says, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to honor every promise. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that in you I could even do the things that you're not capable of doing. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this morning we cannot produce goodness. We cannot produce kindness. We cannot produce love. We cannot produce faith. We cannot produce grace. We cannot produce honor. We were designed to be a vessel that could hold the one who could, who could provide every one of those things. I'm good because goodness lives in me. I'm loving because the one whose name is love lives in me. That's the covenant that God has made with Abraham. That is the covenant that God has made with you. I'm going to love you and bless you, and I'm going to put someone in you. I'm, I'm going to do this because I'm going to ensure that my promises to you can be kept. When I tell you that when you're saved, you're going to heaven, nothing can change that promise. When I tell you that I'm, when, I, when you're saved, I'm going to give you the goodness of the Holy Spirit, nothing can change that promise. It is not based on our goodness or our ability to keep it. And I pray this morning that when you hear these songs, oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. And when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. What an amazing, amazing reality. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 10, God says, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among among which thou art, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible or a powerful or an awful thing that I will do for you. The terrible things don't mean I'm going to do something terrible. It's going to be so awesome, it's going to be so wondrous that the nations around you will flee from you because they're absolutely not going to understand how you're doing, how you have the authority, how you have the power, how you have the strength that you have. The story has never changed. We are still designed to be that mystery in the world right now. That the nations before us will flee because they will not understand by the power of God how we love, how we show, how we demonstrate the authority of God. I want to tell you, you've walked into a place this morning, and I pray that you know it, that whatever you're facing, whatever your situation, God has a desire this morning to set you free. This is not routine church. This is not coming to hear a sermon. This is about the move of God on your life this morning, and I pray that your heart is ready, that you have opened up your heart. There's tenderness here to receive what God has for us this morning. He gave me this message, and I'll share in a few minutes how it came, because it was another one of those that was just odd to me. Verse 11, he says, I want you to observe that which I commanded you on this day. This is almost a retelling of the Ten Commandments. He says, I want you to make no covenants with the people of the land where you are going. I want you to destroy their altars, break their images, cut down their groves. You shall not worship their gods. You will make no molten images. You will keep the feast of unleavened bread. In verse 18, 
He says, I want you to pay careful attention. In all this list, he doesn't mention the other feast. He says, I want you to mention this one. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a reminder that when they were fixing to leave Egypt, they didn't have time for the dough to rise. And he says, I want you to eat this unleavened bread, recognizing that I am your deliverer. I am the one who took you out of bondage. I'm the one who broke the yoke on your back. And I want you to live. I want you to be reminded. I want you to know that I'm the God who set you free. If you're free this morning because God has made you free, let him hear from you. Let him hear the amen that rises from your heart. Are you free? Amen. Amen. God has made us free this morning. The unleavened bread, he says, I want you to remember that you had to leave in a hurry because I called you into freedom. God's consistent reminder is that there will be no other gods before me. We talk about this often, but I need to say it again. As he's making these commandments and he's giving us this instruction, and he tells us in Exodus 20 and here that there'll be no gods before me. He's not telling us that I, I want to be first. That is not what he says when he says there will be no gods before me. He's using the phrase, like I would say this morning, that you are sitting here before me, in front of me. And God is saying in your life, I will accept no other God before me at all. I don't want to see another God even visible in front of me. It's not God first. It is God totally, one, completely. I want to be worshipped and there be no other God before me. This is not a call of God to say, I want to be first. This is the call of God saying, I want to be the only. These are radically different perspectives from our heart. In God's revelation about these scriptures, I had to be still to actually understand because there is absolutely no earnest conversation about the three verses that I'm going to talk about this morning. As a matter of fact, I went to commentaries trying to read and they would just jump these three verses. Or they would mention them and make no comments on them. About these three verses, there was just silence. So I sat before the Lord and said, Lord, I know there is a reality here. There's a truth here. You stirred it in my heart when I received this scripture. I know there's a message here. And I had to wait for the Lord to bring it. And it came, though simple, it was truly profound. Before I get into the uniqueness of it, I want to put it in the context of what I'm talking about. One of the things that we mention here, and you, you know this, you've heard me say it before, that God is a God of purpose rather than time. We live with this question on our hearts, God, how long? When? I wonder how that sounds to God who speaks in terms of everlasting and eternal. That a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. It's when we ask him questions like how long? God is absolutely a God of purpose. He doesn't grow anxious because of the passing of time. He doesn't grow anxious with you. He doesn't grow anxious with me because of the passing of time. The reality is he's looking for purpose within us. And he moves when the purposes are accomplished. We also learn that God is not fascinated with what we do wrong. He's always fascinated with what we need next. I would ask you as parents, how many of you have a book? And in that book, you have recorded the things that your children have done wrong. You couldn't produce that book. Why couldn't you produce a book? Because you weren't fascinated with the things that your children did wrong. You were always watching for what they needed next. 
Again, each one of these things shifts our understanding of God and how He feels about us. Most of us have this concept that God has some kind of a record that He's keeping. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says love keeps no record of wrong. God is not busy keeping a list of all those things that you've done. I want to tell you what, what he showed me this morning about these three scriptures in Exodus 34 was equally strange to me. It was a similar revelation. Here it is. We look at these requirements. We look at these commandments. And most of us believe that they're put there because God is trying to correct something from our past. That there's some kind of punishment. That there's some kind of, there's, there's some kind of lesson that we're supposed to learn. And because of that, He put these requirements in place. He gave us these commandments. He gave the Ten Commandments to correct the behavior of the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt. Well, I want to tell you, that is not God's heart. God gave these commandments. God gave these instructions because He's absolutely fascinated on where we're going and has very little interest in where we in our life have been. He only, even when He was telling the children, His children, remind your children of what I've done, He was only even doing that so that they would have a fascination with the victories that were still before them. He was pointing them to the future. When we look at these scriptures this morning, these instructions, we have to know that God's heart is designed to thrust us forward. As I, as I talked to you last week, most of us have made our past some kind of an idol and we bow at that day after day after day and I know it because our past keeps invading our future. Our past keeps burying our future. As Christians, we are designed to be people whose future always buries our past. But we keep bringing that past up. We keep bringing it forward. We keep moving it, keep moving it, keep moving it. And it keeps burying our future. And God says, I do not understand when I am a God who is so focused on your future, how your past can have the influence that it does. And we bow at the idol of our past, day after day after day, unintentionally glorifying those past, that past brokenness, the broken hearts, the broken lives, the bitterness and the anger, because we keep letting it influence our lives today. God has moved on us to set us free so that that past. And last week, many came. Many came to take the hands of those who were ministers last week to say, I don't want that past anymore to bury my future. And God is saying to us again this morning, I hope you know that I'm 100% fascinated with your future. So we begin in earnest this morning in Exodus chapter 34, verse 18. Follow with me as I read. The feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. In the time of the month of Bib, for in the month of Bib thou camest out from Egypt. Verse 19, all that opens the matrix is mine. And ever firstling among thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not, then shalt thou break his neck. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem. And none shall appear before me empty. None shall appear before me empty handed is what that means. Most, as I said, most authors, pastors, and teachers skip this. But two weeks ago, 
Randy Nichols was here. Randy attends, and his family attend church at First Baptist Church Leveland, but he was here on a Wednesday night. And he was standing here talking to me, and he mentioned a scripture that Sammy Elliott, the pastor of First Baptist Church, had spoken on. I didn't hear the sermon. I don't know the points that Sammy made. But I know when Randy made this statement, that none shall appear before me empty-handed. That God quickened that spirit in me, and I knew that this was the, that was the message for this morning. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Now there's a dozen different directions I could go with that from this point forward. Tendency of my heart would be to say, how many of, of us this morning walked into the sanctuary having absolutely nothing to offer to the God who gave His Son so, to die for us so that we could be free? How many of us have come in empty-handed? And I'm not talking money. I'm talking about when, when it was time to sing, did, it, did the praises of our heart that we're offering to God just roll out of us because we were so full that we didn't come empty this morning before the Lord? How many this morning came empty? How many came with nothing to offer back because of an exhausting week or because of the weariness or because of our past? Who knows what it might be, but who came this morning before the Lord recognizing that He died on the cross that He rose on the third day, that the tomb is empty, that He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could be free, so that we could live in the abundance of what God has planned for us and came before Him with absolutely nothing to offer. Who came empty-handed this morning? Who came empty? Well, as I studied this passage, I thought fully well, that's where this was going. And as I began to put my heart into it, God began to say, no, that is not what this Scripture says. That is not what I'm trying to tell you this morning. That is not where my heart is about this scripture. So I had to back up. And I had to ask again, Lord, if, if that's not it, you're going to have to show me. When he gave this scripture, originally in Exodus chapter 13, he was trying to retrain a group of people who had been slaves for 400 years. And that's all their minds knew. All their minds knew was that they were to make brick every single day and that they did exactly what their taskmaster said. And God says, I'm going to bring you freedom. I'm going to move you out of that. And so, so much of the instruction was to break this slave mentality that each one of them had. But in verse 19, he says, all that opens the matrix is mine. Every, everything that comes out of the wound is mine and ever firstling among thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. God says, I do not want you to worship that which I have given you and claim any ownership to it, because if you do, you will make whatever you worship an idol. He was desperate, determined to break the idolatry off of the people of Israel. He was determined that he would move them away from idolatry. And I want to tell you, in the Jewish world today, you can talk to people who go to the Holy Land. They are not producing idols. God finally got their attention, and they are not a people of idols. They are not a people of statues. They're not a people of structures. They are, a, they are not a people who are going to build idols artificially to worship. Because God was serious when He told them, I don't want you to worship an idol. And He broke that from them. But I want to tell you this. He didn't give them this instruction because he needed the firstborn, or because he needed these things. He knew that if you were going to step into the future that he had planned for, for us, for you, for us together as a body, 
He says, if you're going to step into that, I've got to teach you how to release those things that you cherish the most. You will never step into the future that I have planned for you if you cherish anything and can't release it to me, can't give it to me. You will not enter into what God has for you. And I want to tell you that that ranges from old beliefs that have no place within us anymore to the things of our heart. I want to tell you this morning, God is, God is very specific and very clear. He says, I don't want there to be anything in the range from left to right that you worship or that you value more than me. If there's something in your life today that you cannot release, something that you're proud of, something that you're determined is valuable, if you can't release it before God this morning, then it's going to be very hard to step into the future that God has planned for you. And he knew this about his children. He knew that if they, if they valued anything more than him, that the future would be very difficult. I want to tell you this morning, you know it about yourself, I know it about me. There are some things that I would have a very difficult time letting go. But a long time ago, about 35 years ago when Jay was born, I recognized in that moment, next to my wife, there would be nothing in the world I would cherish more than three kids. But I also knew that if I didn't hand them back to God, that, that we could not enjoy the future that God had in store for us. There are thousands, if not millions, of parents this morning that are valuing their children over God. I can tell by the actions, by the behaviors, by the things they put their kids in, that they love their children, value their children, worship their children more than they do God. We do it with money, we do it with relationships. We do it with many, many things. And God is saying, until you understand how to release those things to me, I cannot bring you fully into the future that I have planned. Verse 20. And if y'all would just allow me to, to change the word uh, to donkey, I don't want to have to be accountable to my mom when I get to heaven for saying a word I'm not supposed to say. It's here and, I, and it's honest, but, you know, for my mom's sake, when I get to heaven, I don't, want, I don't want her saying, why didn't you change that? Verse 20. But the firstling of a donkey thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not, then shalt thou break his neck. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem. This verse must be understood symbolically. It must, uh, we must understand it. Because if we tried to make this literal then it would, it would create about God a cruelty that we can't quite explain. Part of this is, works pretty well because if you were here two Sunday mornings ago, we had a wedding here instead of our normal church. Melissa and Tony got married, and it was beautiful. Last Sunday morning, Melissa, in her time to stand up and to tell us about, to say basically thank you and to say that God was telling us thank you for what we had done that day, how did you start that conversation? What did you tell us about us? God wanted us to know that we're all donkeys. <laughs> Straight from Melissa. It was, she said it was from God and not from her, and that's absolutely the truth, because, because God wants us to know this morning as he's describing this, that is, that's exactly what he's telling us. When you do a study of that word, of that word about donkey, you're going to recognize very quickly that what God is referring to is what man looks like without him. 
He's speaking of a natural man. He's speaking of life without that relationship. The biggest clue that that's what God is saying here, he says, he's saying, because I want you to redeem the donkey with a lamb. I want you to redeem those who do not know Him. I want you to redeem those who do not have a relationship with God. I want you to redeem the natural man by the, with the hands of a, of a lamb. And we know the picture. This is what we're about this morning on Easter. That Jesus, the lamb, came to redeem us. To redeem the natural man and to establish in us a working spirit and a, a spirit that is alive so that we could have an intimate relationship with God who is spirit and truth. And he's telling us, if we don't redeem them, we might as well break their neck. What a strange commentary. If we don't live according to that which God has established in us, He died so that we could be free. The tomb is empty so that we could be alive. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could have authority. With that, with the freedom that we have, with the indwelling Christ that He has given us, if we can't go out and redeem the the natural man, if we can't redeem the world, then I want to tell you this morning, we have missed our point. God has sent us to be light and life into a dark world. And He's told us in this Scripture, if we don't do, what, what have we sentenced them to? When I looked up that phrase about the breaking of, of an animal's neck, these were the words that says, figuratively, to overthrow or to destroy them. If we don't redeem the natural man, if we don't redeem the donkey with the lamb, we break their neck. And then this last question, if I've died for you, if I live for you, if I came back to life for you, to overcome death for you, if I gave you the Holy Spirit, if I've done those things for you, if I put myself in you in the form of the Holy Spirit, where are those individuals that have been saved at your hands? Where are those individuals that your ministry, your life, your witness touched? And because of you, they're standing before the Father in the kingdom today. He's saying, how can you come before me empty-handed when I equipped you perfectly to redeem a world? How can you stand before me empty-handed when I gave you love to love those who couldn't be loved, to rescue those who needed to be saved, to bless those who needed blessing, to forgive those who needed to be forgiven, to restore those who needed to be restored? I gave you those things. I equipped you perfectly. What are we supposed to have in our hands? We're supposed to have in our hands those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. How many lives are you carrying this morning? This is serious. I'd love for this Easter sermon to just be a feel-good one. You know me, that's not really what God gives me. I want this word by the power of truth, by the work of the Holy Spirit, to land straight on your heart and ask you a question. What did you bring in this morning? Because I would love to be able to stand before God and in my hands say, Lord, these are the lives that by me and through me, that by the work of the Holy Spirit in me, these are the lives that have been touched by my hands. That is not arrogance. There is no pride in that. I know who does the work. I know that I'm a vessel, but I know that when that vessel is clean and fit before the Lord and He begins to use these hands to love with, 
to use this heart to express that love, to use these eyes to see with, to use these feet to go with, to use these ears to hear with. I know what He does through me, and if there, and there should be in every one of us lives carried in our hands before the Lord, saying, Lord, thank you this morning for the difference that you have made because you have prepared me, you equipped me, you made me an able minister of the New Testament. And he asked this morning, what's in your hands? The future that he has given us, set before us, if we can set our idols aside, is truly attached to the redemption of unregenerate men and women and boys and girls. And someday we will stand before him. There is a day of accounting, a day of reckoning that I won't speak of right now. We know it to be true from 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 that there will be a day of reckoning for every one of us. Not whether we're saved or lost. There's a day of reckoning for the saved. On that day, we will receive the rewards based on what we have done in this body. Someday we'll stand before him on that day of reckoning and he will ask, Why are your hands empty? Why have you come before me empty-handed? I died that you might be reconciled and forgiven. I rose from the dead that you might have life. I gave you my indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit, that you might have authority to transform lives as I did, to restore and heal as I did, to bring joy and peace as I did, to bring salvation to many as I did, to deliver and rescue as I did, to love and forgive as I did. So why are your hands empty? Did I not die? Did I not rise? Did I not give the Holy Spirit so that you could do exactly what I did when I was here? How strange it would have been for Jesus at 33 years old to have come to the earth, been born as we heard read, baptized and received the Holy Spirit at his baptism, given access to heaven, so that you and I would know that when we're saved, exactly the same thing happens. We become adopted children of God, given access to heaven, given authority through the Holy Spirit. How strange it would have been for Jesus, after three years, to have gone back to the Father and said, God, I didn't change a single life. No one was touched by the words I spoke. No one was touched by the miracles performed. No one was touched by the love that I gave. No one was touched by the demonstration of your power. God, I've just come back to you and have my life made absolutely no difference. Well, I want to tell you this morning, you are equipped exactly the way Jesus was equipped. He said it, you'll, you'll do greater things than I've ever done. There will be a day when he will say, why are your hands empty? If I did for you what I've done, equipped you and made you ready. Why are your hands empty? I ask you this question this morning. What's in your hands? I want us to stand together this morning. And I want us to sing this song. I don't know what God will do. I don't know if he'll move on your heart. I don't know if he's got things to say to you this morning. I have no idea what God has done and how he's touched you this morning. But I will tell you this, whatever he's done, in obedience, respond. Ask yourself this question. I've been a Christian for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. And I stand before God today saying, my hands are still empty. My hands are still empty. 
because I chose to, to bow my knees to the idols around me rather than to bow my knees before him and to obey him and to love him. Let's sing this song together.